Today we're going to begin our journey together with Ruth, and I ask you to begin this morning's worship with a question to think about and to ponder, and it is this one. How can God turn the ordinary in your life into the extraordinary? How can God turn the ordinary in your life into the extraordinary? Now, in the book of Judges, God calls a man named Gideon to be a mighty warrior and to save his people, the people of Israel, from their oppressors. And Gideon responds to the angel whom God sends by saying in Judges 6.15, But Lord, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. We're here today because we worship a God who works through the ordinary in our lives, who works in extraordinary ways. We may not always see it. We may only see our limitations or, or, or weaknesses, or, or we may only see the mundane or the everyday and the ordinary, but God is at work in, a, in extraordinary ways. And so we gather today to worship our God, the author of the extraordinary. And so today, we are going to begin our new teaching series titled Extraordinary or Extraordinary, depending on where you're from. And over the next four weeks, we're going to walk through the life and times of a family of ordinary people who are faced with trying circumstances. But I believe that that's regular, ordinary life. I really do. I think that trying circumstances is kind of where we all reside in our lives most of the time. Hard choices, conflicts, toxic relationships, I, I think that these are things that we all deal with in life. In my experience, it's not often the, the win-lose scenario. It's not often just, you know, here's a good decision and a bad decision. Hmm, what am I going to do? It's often wrestling with the good decision, good decision that's complicated, or the bad decision, bad decision, or in, in really challenging situations when you're faced with a worse decision, a worse decision, and a worse decision. And what do you do when that happens? That, to me, is real life. That, to me, is more ordinary and what real life is like. So, as we begin our journey in this story of this one family, I feel like we're going to discover rather quickly that through these ordinary events, God is still at work. And, and while it may seem negative, it really isn't. It's kind of just the way we respond to the situations that kind of changes the perspective of things. And that God still works in extraordinary ways when we stop and we see God in it. Recently, I was sitting with a friend of mine at a coffee shop. And um, we were drinking our coffee and uh, catching up on the uh, antics of our children. He has a couple of older kids and I have a couple of younger kids and we uh, kept getting interrupted by the um, pings and chirps of our cell phones and we um, quickly silenced our phones and put them aside trying to commit our time to each other because we only had a limited amount of time together in the coffee shop. We both started talking about our work lives because our, our messages and our emails and texts related to work, and we realized we both had very similar lifestyles, and we both bounce around between meetings and professional development and family obligations and, and, and many different expectations, and we felt like, we felt like 
there was no way to get everything done. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, like there's just no way to get everything done in the day and that there's just too many things that, that are expected to be done or that you feel like there's too much to do. But my friend shared that the vision of ordinary life that he had was this picture right here. Like this was his vision of what he thought his life was supposed to be like in his profession when he went into it. But in reality, what he found was his life was more like this as a business person, and that this was what his life was like. And I, I told him, you know, I, I similarly, similarly felt the same way, that, that in reality, I, I felt like I thought ministry was supposed to be more like this here. But in reality, often it feels more like this. Person sleeping in the pews. As, we, as I sat there in the coffee shop with my friend I, and our, our time was running short, I realized that perception and reality are often two entirely different things. For instance, the conception of retirement and living retirement, I find, are two entirely different things. When I talk to people who talk about retiring and I talk to people who are retired, they're not the same conversation. When I look at my parents who now work harder that they're retired than they did when they were working, and they say, boy, this is not what I thought it was going to be like. The concept of being a stay-at-home parent and actually being a stay-at-home parent is not the same thing. They are entirely two different things. The concept of, of getting the promotion or having the, the, quote, dream job are two entirely different things. The reality in our lives is that the perception of something is never, the, the perception that we initially have is never the same thing as actually living out or doing what we think it's going to be. Our, our ordinary lives, our real lives, I'm going to use the word ordinary life a lot, or the word ordinary, and, and I hope you understand when I say ordinary, I mean real life, like what we, we, what we ordinarily live through, our real life situations that we endure, whether we're a pessimist, an optimist, or a realist, you know, whether this coffee cup is half full, half empty, or just has coffee in it, it's still a cup of coffee, people, right? It is an ordinary cup of coffee. It's a real cup of coffee. It doesn't matter your perspective on the cup of coffee. It is a cup of coffee. We struggle with similar things. While our perception may vary, our perception may vary between the use of the object or the thing, it's still the same thing. And while we may not like to admit it, and I'll be honest with you, I don't like to admit it, we all live relatively ordinary lives. We all live relatively ordinary lives. Yes, we are all special. We are all unique. We are all made created uniquely in the image of God, uniquely gifted, formed by God's own hand, breathed into by the breath of God, uniquely created. He counted the hairs on our heads, formed by God, unique. However, we live ordinary lives with ordinary circumstances, real-life things that we all kind of share in. We all deal with birth, Death, 
spouses and, and kids and jobs and retirement, houses, in-laws, outlaws, divorce, cancer, high blood pressure, school, schedules, financial issues, calendars, taxes, the list, they can go on and on. Even our hardest challenges in lives, in our lives, are, are, are often commonly shared by other people. And we don't like to think about that. We, we really don't. We don't like to think about the reality that our common challenges are shared by other people because if they're universally shared, then it makes us feel like ours are not valuable. If everyone is dealing with the same issue, then my issue feels less important. If my problem is not as significant, then maybe I'm not either, but that's, that's just not the case. Because while the issue or the topic may be universal, the situation is not. Because one person's divorce is not the same as another person's. One person's tragic death is not the same as another. Everyone's situation is uniquely different. And so while the concept or the topic is the same, every situation is different. But what is universal through them all, what is universal through every single one of these situations is God's active presence and God's abiding presence through each and every situation. You see, God can take our ordinary and turn it into the extraordinary. And God does in significant ways, significant ways. One of my favorite Bible stories that demonstrates this reality is the family account of Ruth. And today we're going to begin with that story and we're going to walk with this family who deals with significant life events. These are also ordinary life events that we deal with in our lives today, which is why I like Ruth's story so much because what Ruth and her family deals with are events that still translate into our current culture and our time today. And through it all, though, with no direct messages from God, no, no proclamations from angels, no miracles, no mountaintop experiences, God uses ordinary people and situations to do fantastic things that change the course of this entire family and the history of the world as God takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. And so we begin our story today with, not Ruth, but Ruth's in-laws. And so this is what fascinates me about the story. I want to ask you a personal question. If someone was going to write, or if you were going to write a biography of your life story, show of hands, how many of your biographies would start with your in-laws? Anybody? One person in the room would start with their in-laws. Are your in-laws here? Oh, okay. I was going to say, if they were here, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> it fascinates me that, that this, this, this story begins with in-laws. That's a dynamic that we don't hear about so much. Ruth's in-laws are Naomi and Elimelech, and they lived in a little unknown town called Bethlehem. Now, nothing good has ever come from Bethlehem in this time. And, and, and nor, ha, nor for a while, nothing good comes from this town. Ironically, Bethlehem is also, the word Bethlehem means uh, land of bread. But this land of bread is under a famine, which is funny, because that's what the Bible does, right? Land of bread, Bethlehem, no bread, famine. 
So Elimelech and Naomi, uh, they have to make a decision. They, with their two sons, Manlon and Kilion, they move to Moab and settle there. This is how the story in Ruth chapter 1 begins. And it's easy to read over the beginning of Ruth and not give it much thought, but here we come face to face with a reality of real life that translates directly into our culture today. A mother and father are faced with a financial hardship and are unsure if they're going to be able to support their family. There is no food. There's a famine in the land of bread. No food. What do you do? What do you, what do, you do? Do you stay in place where you are and hope and pray? You have two kids to support. What do you do when there's no food for your family, but you're living at home? This is a real problem. Do you take a chance? Do you take a risk? Do you move? For Naomi and Elimelech, Moab was the proverbial sin city of the time. A straight-up Sodom and Gomorrah, if you will. Um, do you leave your home a place for a place that you know nothing about where there will be no safety net, no family, and, and there will be no, no church friends? There will be a different culture, different gods, different value systems, and, and there will be a possi- but there will be a possibility of a better future. And your kids might have a meal to eat. What do you do as a parent? This, here's the reality check. This is, this is an ordinary life event that still happens today. It happens all the time. It happened to me and my wife when I graduated from Central to be a teacher and there were no teaching jobs in Michigan and we had a newborn baby son and I had no work. And we had to decide, do we stay in Michigan and hope for a teaching job or do we move to another state where they had jobs? People often ask us how we ended up in southwest Kansas. This is a real thing that still happens today. So what do we do? We make the best choice in the moment for the future. We make the best choice in the moment for the future. My dad is known to give sagely advice sometimes. As one such piece of advice that he likes to give as often as I ask for it is he says, uh, when I said, Dad, what am I supposed to do? He says, Tim, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And I, uh, I always respond the same way. I say, Pops, because that's what I call my dad, Pops. Pops, um, thanks, you've been a big help. But I think that one of the um, things that we forget is that one of the greatest problems or issues that we face when dealing with complicated choices is indecision. And indecision can cripple us just as easily as anything else. And from a faith perspective, the reality is that God will go with us no matter what decision we make. Do you believe that? I do. God goes with us no matter what decision we make in life. We make the best decision and the best choice we can in the moment. We pray about it. We, make the, we, we, we read the scripture. We pray. We devote everything we can to make that decision. Is it what God wants us to do? We try our best. And then we have to take that step. And we have to make a choice. But God goes with us. God goes with us when we make that choice. 
Even if we end up making the wrong choice, God still goes with us. And so here's how God takes our ordinary and leads it into the extraordinary. We make the hard choice, but God works through that decision. God works through our decision. You see, at the, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' last words to his disciples were, teach these new disciples, the people that are teaching, to obey all the commandments I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 20. Understand, Jesus is, is leaving his disciples. He has died, he's been resurrected. He's leaving his disciples in charge of this ministry to spread the good news. Each of the disciples would have to make hard choices. Go this way, go that way. Do this or do that. Without Jesus personally guiding them anymore. I imagine the disciples were gripped with fear just as they were when Jesus was arrested and when he hung on the cross. But Jesus leaves the disciples with this assurance and be sure Sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God goes with us when we make the decision, regardless of the decision. If you don't believe that, how about in the Old Testament when Joshua was taking over for Moses and led the people of Israel, God gave this commandment, this is my commandment, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua was stepping up in leadership and yet still was uncertain, and God promises to go with him wherever he goes. He's going to be making decisions, and still, no matter what, God goes with him. And the same is true in all of our decision-making. We make the hard choices. We respond when life throws us a curveball. But God goes with us through those decisions. And when he does, he takes that ordinary, and he makes it extraordinary. And sometimes, as in Ruth's story, we don't see the extraordinary in the moment. Sometimes we can't see it in the moment. Sometimes we have to wait to turn the page to the next chapter of our lives to truly see how God's extraordinary manifests itself. And so Naomi and Elimelech settle in Moab with their two sons. And they move into their new house, and they get their forwarding address all set up, their driver's license changed over, their voter registration updated, the kids are enrolled in the school system, and everything is finally starting to fall into place like it's supposed to for us good, faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Finally, all of their hardships just melt away. Because that's how it works, right? No. Elimelech dies, and Naomi is left alone in a foreign land, a single mom with two sons, How's that for real life? Naomi makes it on her own, though, without remarrying, presumably through the work of her sons, as they marry two local Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. Then things start to work out for the better until both their sons die. Now, I've never lost a spouse or a child, but I have a close friend who has. I can't begin to describe the emotional turmoil that Naomi would have faced. But as sad as, as it is, it's real life. And it happens. Because tragedy strikes every home. I would venture to bet that everyone in this room today could say they, have, they know someone who has experienced a tragedy 
or has personally experienced tragedy in their life. Death is as universal as life. Everyone is impacted by death in some way, whether it's tragic loss or it's an expected loss. It impacts everyone. And we each experience the brokenness. We each experience the mourning. And as we connect with God, we realize that God never leaves leaves our side. And as we step out in faith in response to that tragedy, it helps us to grow in enduring faith. So the way that God takes that ordinary of tragedy, the real life of tragedy, and leads it into extraordinary is when we realize that we have limits, but that God does not. That God is limitless. The author of James says this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Finding joy in tragedy seems counterintuitive. I know that. The more significant the trial, the higher our faith endurance is stressed. And the stronger our endurance, the more our faith has the potential to grow. A perfect and complete faith in God leads us to need nothing, is what James is saying. And when we live our lives fully and wholly devoted to God, we truly need nothing else. But we, myself included, are works in progress and still have limits. See, we grow incrementally in our faith through our trials and through our tragedies. We grow a little bit at a time, just as Naomi did. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit more. But God is limitless and grows our faith exponentially as we remain faithful. God not only has our lives in his hands, but also the entire universe. And God is at work not only in our lives, but in other people's lives, which changes the entire dynamic. And in different situations that will connect and interconnect in our lives through those trials. And Naomi saw this happen as God was at work in different situations and was at work back in Bethlehem. We may have a limited vision sometimes in our trials, just as Naomi did, but God is limitless and goes beyond. And so let's get back to Naomi's story. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's home, and, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the uh, security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. And Naomi explained to her daughters-in-law that she couldn't give them new husbands. Because remember, in Naomi's culture, um, <clears throat> it was the brother's responsibility to marry the widowed uh, wife to provide another heir to inherit the land of the family of the deceased. But this was not something that she could do because her husband had died and her sons had all died and she was not going to have any more children, so she could not fulfill that role as a mother-in-law. So again, they wept together and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. 
But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there, will, there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Ruth makes a commitment. And making a commitment is important. I always wondered who Naomi appreciated more. Orpah, who, who, who followed her instructions, the daughter-in-law who followed her instructions, or Ruth, who disobeyed but took such a leap of faith. As a son-in-law, I feel that issues of disobedience and obedience to one's mother-in-law would warrant more interpretation in the text. I really do. I, I think that that should be expounded upon by the author a little bit more. That would give me a little bit more to go on, but... <clears throat> Still, we know what it means to make a significant commitment. Commitments require follow-through and intentionality. And sometimes it's easy to say yes and to forget the obligation. Saying no is sometimes harder, but it would be more accurate of a statement. How hard is it for you to say no? Is it easy to say no when someone asks you to do something? A lot of times it's easier just to say yes and then not do it. I read Ruth's words and I'm saying, wow, if I said that to someone, it'd be really easy to say that and then not do it. But what's amazing is that Ruth actually does what she says. It must have been hard for Naomi to ask her daughters-in-law to leave. They had been her lifeline for 10 years after her husband died, after her sons had died. And she asks them to, to go home so she could go back to her home alone. That would have been hard. But I'm reminded of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. Just say a simple yes, I will. No, I won't. And anything else is from the evil one. Commitment can be challenging. The only way someone can make a commitment like Ruth makes and to take a leap of faith like she takes is through the sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit. What Ruth did was take a strong leap of faith, but it was more than a blind leap of faith. It was, it was founded on three levels of commitment. What she did is she took a leap of faith, and she had a commitment to God, and then God was able to do something extraordinary through it. A leap of faith plus a commitment to God allows for God to do extraordinary works. Ruth doesn't jump blindly and just say, yes, I'm going to do this. She commits herself to stick with Naomi, to adapt to Naomi's culture, just like Naomi did when she moved to Moab, into Moab's culture. More importantly, Ruth commits to leaving Moab's deities, her, Moab's gods behind, and commits her life to Naomi's god, to the god of Israel. A blind leap of faith is just a jump into the unknown with no idea what's to come. And we all come face to face with this as we reach the forks in the road in our lives. Do we, do we go this way or do we go that way? Do we, do we make this choice or that one? And, and what Ruth's story teaches us is that a faithful leap must be paired with a commitment to God if we expect God to take that choice and do something amazing with it. Ruth just didn't just say the words. She was committed to what she said. And she committed herself to Naomi, but also to God. And that's what I want you to hear in this right now. Because this goes back to making that choice. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. When you have to make that decision and that take that leap of faith, 
God's extraordinary also comes back to your ability to be committed to God's leading in it as well. We're all dealt poor hands at times in our lives with tough decisions, but God can do amazing works through them. Sometimes we don't see those amazing works in the moment. Sometimes it takes days, it takes weeks, it takes years to see the extraordinary that comes out of those events. But God is still at work through them. And this week, we're just getting into this story of Ruth and Naomi. And we've already been confronted with famine, with moving, with marriage, with in-laws, and with death. And some would say that this story is a tragic story. I don't see it as a tragic story. And we all know that it's not. Because these things may seem tragic from one perspective. And then from the perspective of the ideal world, maybe it is a tragic story, but we don't live in that ideal world. Because we're all faced with these hard choices and complicated situations every day of our lives. And the story of Ruth is a story much like our own. And it's not a pessimistic story. It is a real-life, ordinary story. And God can do amazing things in our lives and in our world today, just like God is doing in this story, as we see in the weeks to come. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your worship folder out for just a second. And I'd like you to open it up to the inside page above the calendar. You'll find a section that says, My Next Steps This Week. The first next step is after spending time in prayer, make the hard choice that you are currently struggling with in your life. And this goes back to that first thing, that we make hard choices and God works through our decisions. So the first thing I want you to do is I want you to make the hard choice that you've been struggling with this week because I believe that every week we have to make hard choices in life. We all tend to stand at the fork in the road and evaluate the options. I am the worst one. I like to research things. Sometimes it takes me weeks to months to make a decision on something. But it's time to make a decision because indecision can cripple us as people of faith. God is going to go with you regardless of your choice, but you still need to do your best to make the best decision that you can make that you feel God is leading you in. Spend time in prayer this week. Spend time reading some scripture. Then by the end of the week, I challenge you to make a decision. Make your choice. When you come to the fork in the road, take it. The second step is find joy in your trial by identifying how your faith has grown. Remember, we have limits, but God is limitless. James says that when your faith is tested, your endurance grows, and that we should take joy in that fact. In every trial of our life, if we remain faithful through the struggle, our faith will grow. It will endure. So I want you to take some time this week to think about a time when you were going through a trial. And it may be a present trial you're enduring right now. Identify how your faith grew in that time and celebrate that faith growth. Celebrate it. There is nothing wrong with celebrating your faith growth. Take joy in it. The last one is take a leap of faith this week and back it with commitment to God. If you expect God to do extraordinary things, you cannot take a blind leap of faith. You have to have a leap of faith with a commitment to God for God to do something extraordinary in it. So the last thing I challenge you to do this week is to take a leap of faith backed with a commitment to God. And this could take a variety of forms in each of our lives. It could be a spiritual discipline that you may start. It could be a professional development that you want to start on as well. It could be stepping out in faith to lead in a way that you've never led before. But take a leap of faith backed with a commitment to God, as Ruth did. Take a leap of faith back to the commitment to God and see how God works it into the extraordinary.
Let's take a moment to pray together. Holy God, we are so grateful for your presence in our ordinary lives. You show up in amazing ways, taking our ordinary and making it extraordinary. Help us to never take you or your presence for granted. Give us the courage to step out in faith as Ruth did as we strongly commit ourselves to you. Let us be people who go where we are sent and claim you as our God, no matter where we find ourselves in this life. It is in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. Amen.